All right, Leviticus 25. I hesitate to say this, but uh, this might be my last time ever getting to preach the book of Leviticus. So, depending on if Jeff decides to cycle back through Leviticus again in 10 years, if you're still with us or, uh, or not, I don't know. But I was just saying to Bailey last night uh, that this is probably, unless Jeff gets sick, my last chance to uh, preach out of the book. For now, anyways. So, we're getting to the end, all that to say. For those of you that are hanging on, we're getting to the end of Leviticus. And uh, we got a few more weeks together. Uh, but this is a, it's been a great time as we've studied through Leviticus. I hope you've enjoyed it and been blessed by it. This morning we are talking about, we're looking at this theme of redemption in Leviticus 25. Jeff introduced to us last week a little bit about the year of Jubilee, but he was very careful not to steal anything away, which I'm grateful for him for doing that. Um, so we're going to look really at the, at the context of the year of Jubilee and what that really look like in a practical way for the nation of Israel this morning. Um, but before we do that, as we think of this idea of redemption, I want you to think of a time or maybe like one of the, one of the first purchases you ever made, um, something that was exciting to you. Uh, I, for me, it was at least one of them was when I was younger in high school, I used to work on the farm and I used to save up my money and uh, I always, the goal was always to buy your own car. I don't know if any guy has had that, that goal in high school. I'm assuming I'm not alone in that. But they wanted to buy their own car, right? And I shared a car with my sister. And you can imagine what that's like, having to share a car with a family member when, you know, if you want to go out and you got you to gotta share that one car. And so I always had this goal of I'm going to get my own car. And uh, in high school, I saw this movie called The Italian Job. I don't know if you've seen that. But there's these really cool cars in Italian Job. Mini Coopers. You ever heard of a Mini Cooper? right? So in high school, the Mini Cooper was like the car I wanted. So I was looking at Kijiji and Auto Trader for a Mini Cooper. And uh, thankfully, I didn't buy it. I had a very wise father who always would talk me down when I got on Kijiji or Auto Trader to buy that car. I'd say, Dad, check this out. Look at this, like, this Mini Cooper, you know, it, it, it's going to sound cool because it's got an exhaust kit in it. And, uh, and he'd be like, and he would talk, we'd talk about it. We'd look, he would, you know, keep me from going that way for a bit. And then I would, you know, I would get onto the next car, whatever it is, and I would see, and I'd be like, hey, check this out, what do you think? And it'd be like, ah, anyways, it wasn't like a discouraging, but it was just like, a, would that really be the wisest? Like, you know, you and your sister could share the car that we have, you know, just pay insurance and gas and that's it. You save yourself, you know, how much thousands of dollars not having your own car. And uh, so I never, I, I, in high school, I always wanted a car. I was looking to uh, purchased one with the money that I was working to save up for. And eventually, when I got out of high school, went to Bible school, came back home and actually needed a car, like really needed one because I was driving and commuting into work. My dad helped me pick one out and guess what it was? A Honda Civic. <laughs> nice, affordable, efficient Honda Civic. No exhaust kit, no, no lower to the ground, nothing like that, but it was good on gas. It was cheap and it was reliable. And so that's what I drove. That's what I redeemed my money, my money with. And it was exciting. I will say it wasn't, you know, Mini Cooper, but it was exciting to have my own car, to own something for myself. And this idea of redemption, when we think of redemption, it's this action of gaining something or gaining a possession of something in exchange for resources, right? For something else, for payment. And so I saved up for years and years to buy this car uh, and to own, and it was an exciting time to own that and to be able to kind of have that, the use of that the way I wanted to. 
But what was it for you? What is something that you've redeemed, something that you have purchased? Maybe it was your first house together. Maybe it was something else. Uh, what was it that you've redeemed and that you've been excited about? I want that picture in your mind as we walk through redemption here this morning. So if you are in your Bibles in Leviticus 25, let's read then. I'm going to read the first two verses of our chapter, of our section, and then I'm going to jump ahead a bit. Uh, I would encourage you to go and read the rest of this chapter in full uh, today some point, but uh, for the sake of time here, we have 30 verses, and I just want to read a few just to get a, a picture of what we are learning about, because we are going to see some overlap as we walk through this. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 23, it reads this way. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. And then jump with me to 47. We'll read to the end of the chapter. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or, or the sojourner with you, or to, to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he has with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionally for his redemption, some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this is the word of the Lord. So we're looking at redemption this morning. In the context that we see, we're going to see redemption of both land and somebody, their, their bodies, as, they, as they've sold themselves to work, to be a servant. But these verses, they explain Jubilee and how redemption worked for those who were forced to sell property and sell maybe themselves in order to be able to make a living. And so the first thing we see this morning is that God is, in these first few verses we read, God is a redeeming God. And we've beautifully sung about it this morning. We know that God is a redeeming God because of Exodus chapter 6. This is the first point in Israel's history where we really see God's redemption. And it says this, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Here, God is a redeeming God. And in our passage, God uses... The year of Jubilee, he acts as a redeemer for his people through the law of Jubilee that he institutes here in, in Leviticus 25. And so God acts as a redeemer as if, they were, if they're unable to redeem the land before 50 years, God steps in and he redeems them at the 50th year. He provides a way of redemption for his people if they've come to this point in their lives of insurmountable debt. And it's interesting when you read through these verses, it doesn't say how the person accrues the debt, 
right? It doesn't say for the person that was lazy and spoiled all his money and now has to sell himself and all his land and becomes in debt, right? There could be many different reasons for why somebody was in debt and it doesn't specify, redemption doesn't specify whether or not they did it in a smart way or not. And I think that's a little telling for us was it laziness? Was it hard work? What was the reason for their indebtedness? Maybe they were a hard worker and yet they still had to because of the times and because of the way the economy went, they had to sell what they had. And so God offers this redemption to all of his people, to all of his people. They're all worthy of it and God offers it to them all. But in this idea of redeeming God, of God being a redeeming God, we see two things. The first thing that everything is God's in verse 23. As you read that verse, everything is God. What does he say? The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. This is a theological statement about who God is, about what he owns to the nation of Israel. Everything is the Lord's. All that Israel has is from God. The land that he gave them, the blessings that were his. And what does he say? You cannot and you should not sell that permanently because it's not yours to begin with. It's mine, Israel. And so don't sell it, and you can't sell it permanently. And in case we've forgotten that today, that hasn't changed. God still owns everything. Everything that we have is still the Lord's. We're strangers. We're stewards of what God has given us. Of the time, of the resources He's given us on this earth, we're stewards of those things. They're not ours to decide what we want to do with. And what we think we should do with, we should be seeking God for wisdom and how to use those things. But we too often forget this. We too often live as if we do really, in fact, own the things that we have and we forget the reality that everything is God's. Maybe we recognize that reality when you talk to me, but it can be very different in the way that we live out in our actions and in our heart and what we desire, what we long for, what hurts when it's taken away. Right? We can struggle with this reality, with this truth that everything is God's. We have a tight grip on, our, on things and on our stuff and on the way we want things to go. And we fail to recognize that God is the owner of all those things. And so God owns you and He owns me. And we've all been entrusted with things that God has given us, blessings to honor Him. But we've been entrusted with those things. And one day, you and I are going to give an account to God for the way that we did that, the way that we use the things that God has given us. Right? Did you build up treasures in heaven where rust and moth are not going to destroy? Or did you build up treasures on earth, material possessions, things of the earth, things that don't last, things that don't have eternal value? So everything is God's in verse 23. We see that. Now we see that in verse 24 as we keep continue reading that redemption is required. God required redemption for all of His people. It was mandatory as we read these verses. And in all the country that you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. And we notice later in the verses that we read that redemption is even extended to those that sold their land to foreigners. Israel was supposed to guard and watch and make sure that this happened amongst themselves and amongst the foreigners that would would have come to live with them and purchase land and live amongst them. Israel was required to keep this redemption available to anyone that was in debt. And these rules governed all the land that God owned. 
and all that Israel was given by God. And why, might we ask as we come to that, why is redemption required? As we read through these verses, why do we think that God offers this to His people? And especially when we read, these, when we read through our verses, we see specifically redemption for somebody who is poor, who does not have the means with which to provide for the family, to have land and a resource. Why does God offer this? Because redemption is required to save families from debt, from the destruction that debt caused and causes. Right? Debt destroys because it makes us slaves to the people and the things that we owe money to. Debt causes social disruption. It can lead to things like, it can lead to, it doesn't always, but it can lead to things like poverty and crime and violence. And so redemption was required so that you couldn't just have people that were wealthy and rich continue to add to their pockets at the expense of everybody else. Redemption was required to keep those that were greedy and wanted to hoard from continuing to be able to do that. And so God offers and brings and institutes redemption for the poor. And why? Because everything is God's. Everything is the Lord's. That's why. Then secondly, we see the redemption of property in verse 25 to 34. The way the passage breaks down really for us is we see the rules for how you redeem property, and then we see the rules for how you redeem people, because there were times where people needed to be redeemed, and we read about that in our 47 through 55, and so that's how we're going to follow through as we work through the text this morning. So then as we walk through this, what did it look like for redemption of property? Then the first thing we see in verse 25 is there is moral duty for family members to act as a redeemer for their family. A family member had the obligation to help somebody in their family that was in need if it was possible for them to do so. They acted as the redeemer. They would purchase the land on behalf of that family member in order to keep the land inside of the family and that blessing that God had given the family inside of the family. So they would, in a sense, compensate for the weaknesses and the faults of their family members. Who likes to compensate for the weaknesses and the faults of their family members? Anybody? Life would say amen to that. Right, that's a challenging thing as we read it. The, the moral obligation for a family member to take care of their family. We just talked about how that debt was accrued, whether that was through hard work or whether that was through laziness and silliness of spending. And yet the family member had an obligation to help that person. It's a challenging thought and truth for us to think about because we like to just have to take care of ourselves, right? And leave the people that make their choices and have to live with their consequences. We like to leave them to themselves, even if it is family sometimes. What would that look like for us today? Think about our attitude, about their attitude towards those that are in debt, right? We would look down at them and say, serves you right for putting yourself in that position. You know, you could have made this and this and this decision and you might not have been there. But then there was also cases where, you know, that wouldn't have been the case. But we see that the family member had an obligation to be a redeemer. And then in verse 26 to 27, we see the price of redemption. And it's explained a little bit for us. The price of redemption was calculated by looking at how many years there were until the year of Jubilee. And you would calculate back and then you would, that, you would figure out a price based on how many years uh, there was until the year of Jubilee. And as you got closer to the year of Jubilee, the land got cheaper 
because there was less value to it. You were going to have it. The person that bought it was going to possess it for less time, and so there was less value to it uh, as you get closer to uh, Jubilee. But it wasn't because of greed or inflation that these prices were calculated. It was based on how many years until Jubilee when the land is going to be freed back to the original owner. And in a city, it was a little different. The person was given the full right of a year of redemption. He was given a full year to accrue that money back for what he sold the house for. And if he earns it back, he can redeem it. Uh, and after that, there was no redemption. In a city, if you, if you sold your house and you couldn't redeem it in a year, you, it was done and sold. Uh, but the land specifically, that was kept uh, and that was kept and honored in the year of Jubilee and given back to original owners every 50 years. But if you could come up with the money, it was yours. So the option was always there when it came to the land. The option was always there. If you were able to earn the money for redemption, the price of it, you could earn that money and then you could redeem that land and have it back at any point between the time that it was sold and the year of Jubilee. We'll come back maybe to that thought later. And then the year of Jubilee, we see in verse 28, the finally the year of Jubilee. What did it look like for redemption of property? If a person was unable to pay back the debt that they owed at the time, and he needed to wait until the year of Jubilee in order to redeem that, where it was given back to him and returned to the original owners. So the original owners would get the land that was promised to them and given to them by God. It was returned to them. So every 50 years then, the Israelites were given one chance uh, at a clean slate. If something happened for whatever reason, there was 50, 50 years. So depending on where that fell, you know, that would be different for everybody. And some people would get the unfortunate event of you know, going into debt maybe just a few days after or years after Jubilee and they have to wait 48. But every... Every 50, God institutes a time for there to be redemption for those things that were lost. Because God owns everything, and everything is His. Thirdly, then, we see in verse 35 to 55, we see the redemption of people. There were times where people got to a point where they had to, in fact, sell themselves to work for somebody, to do labor for somebody because they were not able to uh, have any more assets, right? So if you sell, you would sell parts of your land off piece at a time, and eventually you get to the point where you have no land left, and so what you have left, the only asset you have left is yourself to work as a hired servant for somebody until you can earn enough to eventually pay back your debts. And so we see this, and this is why God writes it in here because there were, there were times where people needed to be redeemed. And when we see that, we see a few things. We see firstly in verse 35 to 38 that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. If your brother cannot maintain himself, Israel, aka if his debt overcomes him, you're supposed to support him like a sojourner. You're supposed to treat him like a sojourner. Take no profit from them, these verses say. Don't charge interest for what they owe you. Israelites were not allowed to charge interest to fellow Israelites at all. Don't take advantage of the people that are in need. Right? If there's an opportunity and they need to work, give them a job, give them a fair wage, allow them to work, allow them to make money, and allow them to be able to earn their redemption, the price of their redemption. Provide a way for them. So love your neighbor as yourself. And then we see in verse 47 49 the right of redemption for somebody who gets to the point where they have to sell themselves and work as an asset. 
for someone who sold themselves as a servant, they could be redeemed at any time in those verses in 47 through 49, any time by a family member or a close relative, or if they were able to earn enough money to pay for it themselves for their redemption. There was always a right of redemption. You were never allowed to be owned and to be kept as a servant forever in perpetuity, at least in the nation of Israel. There's always that right. And they would look to the year of Jubilee again to determine what that was. But in that, they were treated as a hired worker. And then we see in that too that we see that they were supposed to be treated with dignity. In verse 43 through 46 and even in 53 again, we see that they're to be treated with dignity. They're not worthless. These people are not worthless. The way that they incurred their debt does not mean that they're worthless. So don't rule over them ruthlessly, Israel. And God was drawing their minds back to Egypt, right? That time where God's people were ruled over ruthlessly by the Pharaoh, by the Egyptians, right? When there was labor upon labor added to them. And God's reminding them of that great oppression that was upon them. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't be like those people. Don't, don't enslave these people that are poor this way as you were. And even for the foreigner that owns an Israelite, they were to make sure that this rule was followed because that, obviously that happened. And they say, even though it's a, he's a foreigner, make sure that he doesn't rule over an Israelite in that way. You have an obligation to make sure that this is kept and make sure that this is followed. And most of our English Bibles, as you read these verses, you might see the word slave several times. You probably see that word in your English translation. And so this can be a bit of a text that we wrestle with when it comes to slavery and this topic of slavery. What is that? And maybe just let me shed a little bit of light on that conversation as we walk through. This, is, this could be a whole other topic. But our minds, when we hear that word slavery, are often drawn to Roman slavery or like the slavery of the Egyptians or even slavery in the United States. Um, not very long ago, we we're reminded of that slavery where slaves were purchased and owned as property and abused, Right. And we're often we think of that when we think of slavery, but the Hebrew word for servant or slave could include both legitimate and illegitimate forms of that of slavery or of servanthood or servitude. And so you could be a king's servant, you could be God's servant, and the translation would typically come through as servant in the English word. You would see servant, but where you see slave is things like for indentured servants or permanent servants. We typically see that word slave come up. And it's a, it's a word that we sometimes cringe at because of the context. But, a, but an indentured servant was not maybe what we typically think of. An indentured servant was used, was used to describe Hebrew slaves who were slaves of fellow Hebrews. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see what did slavery look like for the nation of Israel. It was very different than the slavery that we see or that we think of when we hear slave and go United States, Roman slavery, Egyptian slavery. It's a very different picture that we read in the Old Testament. And so they were to serve. An indentured servant was someone who was to serve for six years. And at the end of six years, if he wanted to go free, he was allowed to go free. But he could also choose to stay and work as a servant for his master. That was an indentured servant. If they chose to stay, it was fine. And according to the definition of servant or slave, we would assume that the slave has no rights, right, and is not allowed to do that and to leave, and they would have to serve forever. 
and that they also would be required to do whatever their master says. But this type of slavery, as I said, is forbidden for the nation of Israel. Exodus 21, you can write these references down and look at them later, but Exodus 21, servants were to go free if their master was ever abusive to them. If they ever hit them in the eye or, caused them, or hit them in the mouth and caused them to lose a tooth or anything like that or would hit, abuse them in any way, Exodus 21 says they were able to go free. Everyone, including servants in Exodus 20, everyone was required to observe the Sabbath, even the servants. So working somebody seven days a week, 24 hours a day, was clearly not allowed for the nation of Israel. Israel was commanded to treat their servants, their slaves, those that were serving under them and that they were master over, they were to serve them with compassion. A very different picture than what we think of when we think of slavery. They were not treated, servants in Israel were not treated, or at least were not allowed to be treated like the slaves that we think of in the Roman world or in the U.S. They were treated with dignity, with compassion. And when the ideal world comes and Christ returns, servitude, this idea of being a servant, is going to continue. You and I are servants of the King, of King Jesus. And we're going to continue serving Him forever. And so the way that an Israelite master ruled over his servants was supposed to be a foretaste of what that was going to be like, serving for God, serving under God, and serving God forever. So they were to serve them with love and compassion and dignity and worth and value. Because that's who they are. Because that's true about them. And so it's a picture of what that day was going to be like. But Israelites were not allowed to ever enslave covenant members. And we read that in those verses. They were never allowed to enslave another Israelite as a permanent slave. And that's because of our next point, that God's people are His servants. God's people are His servants. God's people are His possession. You, God's child, you are God's possession. And God's people are not owned, they cannot be owned, and they cannot be ruled by somebody else other than God, the king, their king. He's the only one that has the right to rule over them. And so that's why Israel was not allowed to own fellow Israelites and not allowed to have them serve as slaves permanently or as slaves in general as property over them because of who they were, because they were members of a covenant family. And the implication being that you should not oppress somebody or make them your slave when they should be free to serve God. And this is what kind of happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they added rule upon rule upon rule, right? And they, and they made it so hard to live for God and to, have an, and to live an honoring life. They were adding these things. They were making them slaves to these laws, God is the only one who is king and master over his people. So how do you treat people that are made in the image of God? How do you treat people that are loved by God? Do you belittle them? Do you look down on their weaknesses, their failures, their sins? How do you see them? Do you see them as God's servants? We all have our weaknesses, and yet we all serve our king. So finally, I want to look at our redeeming Savior, Jesus Christ, and the implications of these verses. I think this jubilee points to these things. When Christ looked down on us, when He came to this earth, when He looked on this earth, and He saw the price that needed to be paid and needed to be redeemed for us, He came with great joy. 
He didn't come begrudgingly. He was excited. Like that, first, like that first item you've ever redeemed or ever purchased, that excitement that was there when you purchased and redeemed that thing, or my first car, my Honda Civic, that excitement that was there is to say, obviously not the same, but it's in greater magnitude, this, this excitement and the joy that Jesus Christ came when he saw the debt uh, that needed to be paid and the price that needed, needed to be paid for our redemption. And so we're going to see three things as we close. The first thing that we are redeemed. In Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14, it says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the debt that he paid. There's a penalty for our sin. There's a penalty for your sin. When you sin, and when you have sinned, it cost somebody something, and it cost Jesus Christ His life. Your sin and my sin, it cost Him His life. And Jesus saw that debt, and He looked at that debt, and He took it on Himself. He cleared it, as these verses say. Can you imagine that? For someone to come to you, I mean, we all probably have some form of debt or another, maybe a little bit, maybe some more than others. Most of us that are in the housing market have some kind of debt. Can you imagine somebody coming to you and saying, I'll pay that debt for you. You're free to go. That's yours um, and your possession now, and you're free. No longer having to make mortgage payments. No longer having to worry about when the Bank of Canada raises the interest rates, and you're going to have to start paying more. Can you imagine someone coming to you and saying that to you or whatever your debt is, completely canceled, completely free? How would you respond? Willing servant forever? The price for my sin and the price for your sin is a far higher debt that can be accrued than anyone else could accrue on this earth. You cannot accrue a debt greater than the debt that was paid for us on the cross by Jesus Christ. And if we're left to pay that debt ourselves, and then it is eternal life that we're separated from Christ. If we're left to do that and to try to pay that, then it's eternal life, separation from Christ. And what God and Jesus call that, they call that hell. He calls that hell, separation from God forever. But praise be to God that we're redeemed and that we've been set free and that Christ redeems us. And then secondly, I think as we follow through this, we see that we're set free. Jeff did a great job of talking about freedom last week. And in Romans 6, we're reminded again, but now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. See, we've been set free from sin. You and I have been set free from sin. Sin doesn't have the power that it used to have over us if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't have the same power that it once did. The point of the law was always to point to sin and to reveal that we need Jesus Christ, that we need somebody to live perfectly for us, somebody who can fulfill the law perfectly because we can't. And now, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living inside of you. That's a great truth. That's a great reality. Because you know what that means? It means that sin doesn't have that same power over you. You have the Holy Spirit to choose whether or not you are going to sin and to choose not to. You have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You have that Spirit inside of you to live a life that honors God, where you couldn't do that before. 
before you place your faith in Christ. And so this Holy Spirit empowers you to say no to sin because you've been free. Christ our Savior has redeemed us. He has set us free. And finally, we can rest. We can now rest. Hebrews 4, verse 9 and 10 I'll read Matthew as well. It says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can rest. You can rest from the burden of trying to prove yourself to everybody else around you, even your fellow brother and sister that you're sitting beside this morning. You can rest from trying to prove yourself to them. From trying to be more, not more righteous, but as righteous as somebody. You can rest from trying to prove yourself and your worthiness because you are worthy. Because God loves you. Because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. And I don't know about you, but that is a burden. To try to be somebody who you cannot be without the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can rest from that burden of trying to maintain an image before others because you can't do that. You can rest in the righteousness of Christ because you can't make yourself righteous. Only God can through Jesus Christ, through His finished work on the cross. And that's why in Matthew, Jesus invites those that He's speaking to. He says this, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus does not add rules on rules on rules for you to do to be accepted. He loves you. He loves you for who you are. He loves you even though you're going to sin as soon as you leave this building today, and tomorrow when you wake up, you're going to sin, and God still loves you. He doesn't love your sin, but He loves you. And there's no Sabbath rest outside of or without Jesus Christ. There's no rest for you. You will continue to work and to try to make yourself righteous before Him until you accept and rest in the righteousness of Him on your behalf. He alone satisfies the requirements of the law, and He alone provides a sacrifice for sin. So he invites us in Matthew, come to Jesus and you'll find rest. Christian or non-Christian, come to Jesus and find rest in his finished work. You won't feel like you have to live up because Jesus came and he lived for you and he lived to that standard that you maybe hold yourself to. You won't have to live up to him because he's already done it for you. So as we conclude, I want to read Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. This is Jesus when He's in the synagogue and He's reading the Scriptures and, he's, and He says He's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Here now, let's read Luke 4 together. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a reference to the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' ministry on earth is a fulfillment, was a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. All the work that Jesus did when He healed the blind, when He set the captives free, they fulfilled this principle of Sabbath in a completely different way. 
offering this redemption by healing the sick. And yet there is coming an ultimate fulfillment of this jubilee. Christ is coming again in glory. And He's coming to complete the work that He's already started in all of those who name the name of Jesus. And so in Revelation, what does it say? Because Jesus is coming back, God's people say, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank You so much for Your love for us, for Your great love for us. For the debt that we owe You, God, we recognize it. We recognize that we are sinners, God. We recognize that every sin that we have committed and that we do commit, God, is the reason that your Son went to the cross to die for us as a sacrifice. And God, we are so grateful for that this morning, for that redemption that has been purchased for us. It's not something that we have to wait 50 years for, that we only get one shot at, God, but there's this redemption for us through your Son once for all, for all of our sins, and it's a reality that we get to live in and enjoy and love you and worship you for every single day. And so God, we thank you for that truth and for this truth, for the year of Jubilee, for what it pictures. And God, we are so excited and longing for your return of your son as he comes to redeem us and complete the work that is in us. We ask together as we pray this morning that you would come, Lord Jesus, and that you would fulfill and what you are going to do in our hearts and in our lives, God. And we ask these things in your powerful name. Amen.